Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I'm Nikki Miller. And I'm Chris Dixon. And today we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. She is an award-winning author, columnist, and company director. She was named by Thinkers 50 as one of the world's top 30 thinkers to watch, and her career includes three decades of leadership experience, including a previous appointment by the Australian Prime Minister as acting chair and deputy chair of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Kirsten's latest book, Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership, has been described by the number one New York Times bestselling author, Adam Grant, as a timely, actionable book on the virtues that every great leader needs to learn and was named by Thinkers 50 as one of the top 10 best new management books in the world in 2023. Chris, this was such an interesting conversation and such a unique and and light, but also simple and actionable perspective on leadership. I loved this, this conversation with Kirsten. Yeah, so many great things to take away and think about or be reminded of when you're thinking about how you can be a better leader. And I love what she shares about the perspective of everyone is a leader in some capacity. And I think that's so true. Like, how do you choose to, to lead from the front, regardless of what your title, position, perspective, all of that. And I think that's so valuable. And she gives some really great takeaways on how you can apply these different models inside of what is leadership in, the, in a modern context. I also love her perspective on feedback and how to measure it, how to give it, how to receive it. And to me, Chris, this really goes along with the importance of having a coach in your life, someone who can constantly give you feedback, who can really help you measure what's real, what's important, what's not, what are perspectives and changes that you should implement, what you shouldn't, and having a second set of eyes, a second set of ears, and a different perspective on how you're measuring against your goals. So true. And how you can win in not just the big moments of and big opportunities of leadership, but in the small moments that really make a big difference in the long run. So true. All right, let's go listen to Kirsten. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. We are here with the Dr. Kirsten Ferguson, who was named by Thinkers 50 as one of the top world's uh, top 30 thinkers to watch. And her book was named as one of the top 10 best new management books in the world in 2023. And she's here to talk to us about Head and Heart, the Art of Modern Leadership today. Welcome, Kirsten. We're so excited to have you. Hi, Nikki. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'd love to know, Kirsten, how did you come up with the concept for this book? I know you have so much leadership experience, but what led to the writing of this book? Well, it was one of those rabbit holes that we all go down sometimes when you're watching a pretty bad movie or something and you're distracted on your phone. And I remember I was uh, watching a TED Talk, I think, that Simon Sinek did about 10 years ago, and he just briefly mentioned a moment in the Afghanistan war with Captain Will Swenson, and I was immediately intrigued. So I went and found out everything I could. And for anyone who's not aware, there's a remarkable video footage you can find on YouTube of the moment Captain Will Swenson, he's in what became known as the Battle of Ganjagal. He's, I think, 31. He's an unexpected commander. The most senior officer there was injured early. And as he's putting one of his sergeants into a medivac helicopter, a head cam on uh, one of the crew's uh, helmets captures a moment which would otherwise never have been caught. And you see him give him a kiss on the cheek and it's this tender, compassionate moment that was obviously never expected to be captured on camera. 
But what I took from that was, you know, Swenson in that moment demonstrated all those qualities you would expect of a leader in that situation, bravery and technical ability and command and control. But he also showed how he could be compassionate and lead with empathy and self-awareness of the impact that he was having on those around him. And at the same time, I was looking at leaders like Jacinda Ardern or even later Volodymyr Zelensky, who was so different on the world stage and wanted to capture what was this secret source. And so it was really that story of Captain Swenson that started me thinking about what it means to lead with the head and the heart. And I love what you say too about the perspective that everyone's a leader and everyone has the opportunity to look at even any job or relationship they're in or opportunity as, as a chance to lead and do it from this perspective. I'm really passionate about that, Chris. I think it's been ingrained in us for centuries and it's because of theories like the great man theory from sort of the 18th century which said that only entitled, you know, wealthy, powerful men were able to lead, that we've sort of started to believe that over the years because in the history books that's all we ever heard about. And if you think it's only in recent decades that we've really started to embrace wanting to see leaders of all kinds But even then, it tends to be those formal leaders in our organisations who are at the top of the organisation chart or that have those fancy corner offices and great titles, whereas I believe we're all leading in our families, in our communities, and, of course, at work, but maybe not formal leadership role, but in our positions and in our responsibilities, we can lead. And after I tell the story at the beginning of the book about Captain Swenson, I then talk about a young supermarket checkout operator that I witnessed during the pandemic. And she was having to deal with a really difficult customer. She was maybe 19 or 20, the most junior person in the organisation. Yet in that moment, she dealt with this customer with more grace and respect than I perhaps could have um, ushered up at the same time. And there's no doubt in that moment she was leading. So I think we have leaders amongst us all the time and it doesn't require this old-fashioned notion of having followers. Kirsten, I think this is so important because I think so many people hear about classes around leadership or books around leadership and they'll say to themselves, well, I'm not a senior leader in my company. And to your point in the book, you talk so much about how we are leading everywhere all the time in our families, uh, in, in that position, in our companies. You don't have to, no one has to bestow upon you the title of a leadership uh, of a leader for you to have leadership qualities and for you to become a leader within the organization. So if you were speaking to someone who, who has that that uh, record playing in their head, I'm not a leader, this doesn't apply to me, what would you tell them? Well, it's funny you should say that. There's an interview. There's a lot of interviews in the book and there's an interview with a, a, a person who I you know, consider a textbook leader. But when I asked them, they didn't see themselves as a leader at all. They didn't fit that classic corporate model of a leader. Um, they work in academia and, and do all sorts of leading through influence and activism but didn't see themselves in that old school style of leading. I think it's a real mindset shift when you point out that actually think about the influence and impact you're having on those around you because we all impact everyone we come in contact with through our words we use, the choices we make, the behaviours we role model. All of that is a form of leadership. And, you know, there's no doubt if you're a single parent at home making decisions on how to budget the family and get the kids through school and how you're going to juggle multiple jobs, you are leading in your life. You are leading that family. 
And yes, the impact may only be on your small family. It might not be on the country if you're the president, but it's still the same idea. And I think we really need to make sure we remind those we lead. So if anyone listening is a formal leader and are saying, well, of course, I know I'm a leader, that's great. But do the people in that you lead think the same? And imagine if they all felt the same way and understood the impact that they're having. I mean, inspiration can come from all places and all moments. And I think in my own experience, it's not always a formal leader or an engagement in like a formal leadership moment that really inspires. And some of those smaller moments can really be where strength comes from. Absolutely. And leadership is simply a series of moments. And I talk about that a lot in the book. The moment of the kiss on the cheek with um, Captain Swenson and his sergeant, it's just a brief fleeting moment. Yet, of course, it's become infamous with his leadership on that day. And when he was asked about it years later, he said he wouldn't have even believed it had happened had it not been caught on video. And I often ask people when I'm doing keynotes and speaking to corporate groups to think about a moment, and maybe you guys want to do the same, about a leader that made you feel good about yourself. And it could be a parent or a teacher or someone at work. And you'll think about, you know, what it was about them that you remember as being such an influential and positive impact on your life. But now think about that leader that you remember that really had a damaging impact on you and they might have belittled you or ridiculed you. I'm positive that as you think of each of those people, you'll be thinking about a moment. It'll be the words they said in a meeting that really cut you down. It'll be when they gave you a promotion you didn't think you were ready for. It's always a moment And it's easy for us to identify those moments in others, but it's much harder to recognise when we're the one inflicting or positively giving those moments to others. And I think life is so fast. We send out hundreds of emails every day. We're, you know, constantly having to deliver on KPIs. We can miss those moments. And that's something I think as modern leaders we really need to be conscious of. Kirsten, I'd love for you to talk more about this because you do in the book and you do such a beautiful job of articulating it. And, and, and to your point, I think so often we think of leaders as these people who run huge organizations or are standing on the really big stages. And I can't think of many leaders in those scenarios in my own life that have made a huge impact. You're right. It's those small moments that you have with people who you might not have even at the time said was in a position of leadership or were in a position of leadership, but had a profound impact on you one way or the other. And as leaders in organizations and families, families and groups and communities, whatever it is, it's it's so challenging to slow down enough to capture those moments and to make them count when we are so busy and when life is so busy. And you talk about this sort of this notion that, that leadership has been flipped on its head in the last couple of years and, and that it really is about capturing these moments. What would your advice be on someone on how to actually do that? How do you slow down enough to, to, to be <laughs> present in the moment to provide great leadership? Oh, my goodness. I mean, as a leader myself, if I can figure that one out, I think I'll be uh, time to retire. Not enough time for that today, right? (laughs) I think, you know, part of being what I describe as a modern leader is recognising we're going to make mistakes. So like everyone, I miss those moments. I realise I haven't um, thanked someone nearly enough for something that they've done or I haven't been thoughtful around you know, the effort other people have put into something. But what I do do as soon as I recognise that that moment has been missed is go back and try and rectify it. And so I think it's recognising that if we can 
accept the fact we're fallible and that we're going to make mistakes, that's almost a lot of the battle won. And then in those moments, you're more likely to be looking for them and you're more likely to be doing things that you know, are going to have a positive impact. But please don't um, beat yourself up (laughs) if you don't capture them all because uh, you're only human. seems like more and more today we feel that maybe it's social media or something socially driving, technology driving this, but it feels like you need to have a large audience or a large following to make a big impact. But really, you can make a big impact in in a relative small way. And I think remembering to zoom into those moments is something that we, I think, are less inclined to do today for various reasons. But it's so important that that's where you win. You win in the really small engagements, the one-on-one conversations, and can't forget that. Yeah, I think it's very rare, in fact, to be someone who's going to have a really broad impact. The majority of us just impact our small worlds, and that's important. So let's try and get that right. But I think it all comes down to, you know, this art of modern leadership, which I'm sure we're about to talk about, about being able to balance our head and our heart and being able to know what's needed and when. And it's in those small moments. If you really are able to master that art, I think you're going to have the best impact you can. I'd love for you to expand, Kirsten. You're right. I, I, I want to dive into the actual book itself. And you, and you talk about the, these two notions of leading with the head and the heart and that there are four attributes of both. And it was funny because when I was reading it, you realized that naturally when you, uh, to me at least, correct me if I'm wrong, when I feel the best as a leader, I'm usually leading from the heart. Whereas when I think about leadership, it almost always comes from the head. So can you talk about the each of these attributes and how you can apply them and how you came up with them, most of all? I love your insight there, Nikki. That's actually really uh, insightful um, of you. And I think that's right. I think we do feel good when we're leading with our heart, but it's not always what's needed in the moment. And leading with our head is what we've been rewarded for at school and we get promoted on and it's often what we're being assessed on in our performance reviews and things. Ultimately, I think we we all will feel best is when we can balance both pretty evenly and we know what's needed in each situation. So I went and did some research. I'm an adjunct professor at the Queensland University of Technologies Business School and wanted to understand the special source we were talking about before. And I loved this idea and it's a metaphor we've all heard of before. It's just a very simple one. But, you know, what's it mean to lead with your head and your heart? And so the four attributes that my research found to lead with your head, the first is curiosity, a total no-brainer in my opinion, yet terrifyingly uh, the research shows 92% of us value curiosity but only 24% of of us get to experience curiosity at work. So even though we all know it's really valuable, very few of us are getting to feel curious. The second attribute of leading with the head's wisdom, and that's all about decision-making and gathering data and evidence and knowing what information is needed to make the best decision going forward. The third is perspective. Now, this is probably the most important of the eight, even though I try not to have favourites, but only based on the data because it's the most highly correlated with all other attributes. And perspective is, in layman's terms, reading a room, being able to know you know, the signals, read the signals and understand the context and the environment you're leading in, but also being able to notice who's missing from the room. 
And that's incredibly important for getting diverse voices and other lived experiences. And obviously it's not just a physical room. It could be, but it's more likely your organisation, your industry, wherever it is you're working in. And the fourth is capability, and that's all about growth mindset and not only being capable at what you do but believing you're capable as well and helping build other capable leaders. So I find that those four head-based attributes cover a huge amount but they're not difficult. You know, these are ones that a lot of people can get their head around. It's what we're comfortable in. We can see it, feel it. It's tangible. Um, You can measure it. You can put it in a policy. (laughs) It's that kind of really easy to box up um, skills but it's critically important absolutely important. Before, real quick, Kristen, can I ask you a question really quick before you get into heart? Because you said something earlier about curiosity, which I think was really important. I'd love to get your perspective on it because you said that everybody wants it and yet so few people are actually using it or or feeling like that people around them are curious. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's time? I find that one one of the things that Jay Papazan, the co-author of the book, is, is a mentor of mine. And he always says, coming from curiosity is so important. And yet it can be hard to do when you're in a fast moving environment because it takes time. So as opposed to saying, go do this, you did this wrong. You have to say, tell me how you came up with the the plan to do it this way, which is just time consuming. It's the better way to do it. But often as leaders, we don't want to spend the time to do that. Is that what you see? Do you think that's why it doesn't come up? Yep, definitely time is just a practical factor. The second reason to be around if you work in a bureaucracy, which so many people do, there's really no space to be curious. There's a form for that. You've got to fill it in in triplicate and you've got to go and get a co-sign by whatever. You know, people, it's just too hard to be curious because there. it's, you know, I'm assuming the DMV doesn't have much space for curiosity when you're <laughs> going to go and get a licence. There's a way to do it and that's how it is and it's always been that kind of thing. If you work in a culture where there's no psychological safety is another issue. So if you are scared to be curious, if you're scared to ask, well, what if we did it this way? Like what if we got rid of that application form and and just did it on honour or so, you know, integrity, uh, and you get shot down for that, then you're never going to be curious again. So there's lots of other reasons as well. If you're someone who makes assumptions, makes it much harder to be curious. Um, So we've got personal and systemic issues that um, dampen down curiosity. But it's incredible that uh, whenever I speak to groups, everyone raises their hand. It's the one attribute that scores the highest. People resonate with it. Everyone loves it. And you can almost see their eyes rolling like, yeah, of course, curiosity. But when we get down to it, very few of us actually lead curious cultures. That's hard sometimes to think first to understand and ask questions, but it, it, it connects to perspective too? Or do you see that? I mean, you said the importance of perspective to be able to understand the environment, who's there, who's not there. Uh, But if you're not leading with curiosity, how how can you have the right perspective? So we'll move on to heart in a minute, but curiosity uh, correlates most highly with humility. So if you are humble, it means you know you don't have all the answers, which means you're naturally going to be more curious because you're okay with accepting the fact you don't have all the answers. So if you're someone who generally thinks you're right all the time, it's going to be hard to be curious. 
perspective about reading the room and and seeing who's missing, that correlated most highly with empathy and that's because you Mm. are able to try and put yourself in the shoes of others and and both of those are heart-based attributes. And so, again, it shows the model, you know, really it's that balance. Everything's about balance. And while there will be times when, Nikki, I completely agree, I feel the best when I'm leading with empathy and things like that, I know as a leader myself there's plenty of opportunities or periods in my career where that wouldn't have been the right way to lead. You know, it might have been a crisis or a situation that just taking the time to be curious in that situation might not even be appropriate. That's the art of modern leadership is knowing what's needed and when. I feel like early in my, and more call it like formal leadership opportunities, you know, first job as a manager, things like that, you you do feel that inclination that you're supposed to have the answers, or or maybe that was just my experience. But I feel like that's something that has come through actual experience was was to recognize that the strength is in your team, and that the skill is to bring them together for collective wisdom and, and that's empowering and it's two directional and there's, there's just more, there's more to it, but it's hard early to recognize that and feel like that's the the path. It is. And, you know, not knowing the answers is actually a relationship builder, not a relationship destroyer because it builds trust because the bottom line is we don't have all the answers. And most people in the room know you don't actually know, even if you think that you're pretending and doing a good job. Say, of it. And if you do it, think you have all the answers, you're probably in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Then you think you're the <laughs> smartest person in the room and they, they all have another name for you then. So, you know, it's much better to be able to say, you know, it's not going to be every time. I think if you don't know the answer ever, <laughs> that's a problem. But if there's going to be a topic where actually I've got no idea how we're going to solve this, this is something I have not experienced. But between us as a team, we've absolutely got the answer. So what's everyone else think? There is just no way that that takes away from your ability to lead. And you're right, um, Chris, it's been ingrained in us for so long that those all-knowing leaders, you know, right back to the great man, all the way through the titans of industry that we have, you know, followed in the shadow of, they always like to give the impression that they had all the answers. And yet that's not the kind of leader that we need today. Mm. Kirsten, I, I interrupted you on the way to heart, and I think that it's so important to oh, get no, both sides okay. of the this coin. I, I was, I was so yeah. curious. I, I especially, I remember reading that one piece, and I was like, I got to know more about the curiosity piece. Will you, <laughs> will you jump? Will you jump into the attributes of leading with the heart? Yeah. I'd love to. So the first one is humility. And we sort of touched on that before, that it's really highly correlated with curiosity. And humility just means in this, we're talking about intellectual humility in particular. And it's, I think it's really sometimes quite misunderstood. It doesn't mean you think you're less than confident. Humility is a great term um, coined by Adam Grant and others, where, you know, you really understand what you don't know. (laughs) You're confident about that. It doesn't make you feel less than and you just are aware that you don't have all the answers and you're more than happy about that. It's a matter of then seeking it out. The next uh, attribute of the heart is self-awareness and, you know, that's obvious um, the understanding and having insight into the impact that we're having on those around us. Again, another scary statistic, somewhere in the 90s, let's say, you know, 95% of us think we're self-aware. Only 10 to 15% of those we lead agree so just think about that again most of us would say yeah i'm self-aware i know the impact i'm having virtually 
<laughs> no one we lead would agree. 10 to that 15%. is staggering. I know. Now that is why feedback is so important. And so I go into feedback a lot in the book because you have to be calibrating how you're going. And even those of us who think we're, you know, on top of it, we're going to have blind spots. We've got biases. We think we're really good at something. And in fact, (laughs) others have got a very different opinion of that. And so I think self-awareness is another one where it's easy to go, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But, I, you know, I challenge you to see if you're actually doing that well. The third attribute of leading with the heart is courage, and that's courage to stand up for what you believe in, even in the face of pressure not to do so. I think we hear a lot about, you know, really significant whistleblowers who bring down entire corporations. That's not really what I'm interested in or focused on. Of course, that's an example of courage. But this is much more about everyday acts of courage. And it could be taking on a promotion you don't feel ready for, which all of us will have done at various points. You have that imposter syndrome and do it anyway. It might be giving feedback or receiving feedback yourself in a really, you know, meaningful way it can be calling out someone's behavior whatever it might be and the final uh, attribute of leading with the heart's empathy and again we touched on that earlier around the link with perspective but it's really being able to put yourself in the shoes of others and you know again something that seems so obvious but for many leaders they find it hard to accept there's people that haven't had the same lived experience as them now I know it seems obvious But we do have plenty of leaders that just don't understand that their view of the world isn't the same as everyone else's. And so modern leaders understand that they probably have a very privileged, narrow view of the world and we need to seek out other voices in order to make the best decisions we can. So they're the eight attributes. And if listeners go to headheartleader.com, all one word, headheartleader.com, they can actually self-assess themselves and get a personalised report. It's completely free. Um, We've had more than 16,000 people from, I think we're over 100 countries now since January. So um, anyone, just jump on it and test it and you'll get a report that will show how you go against all of those eight um, as compared to a a sample group of about a 1,000 leaders I used with the university to build the tool. Here at The One Thing, we talk a lot about forming powerful habits. You can change your habits, you can change your life because habits are truly the foundation for shifting your behavior over time and we want to form healthy habits, it's important. And I wanna talk to you about forming healthy habits around skincare and specifically for us guys because Caldera Lab and men's skincare are the perfect pair for you to look and feel your best. Having a solid routine and habits surrounding your skincare is an investment in your future self and how you look and feel today. Caldera Lab creates high-performance men's skincare products and the Regimen leads off their product lineup with just a twice-a-day routine that will transform your skin. I personally have been using the Regiment and its three products, the Clean Slate, a facial cleanser, the Base Layer, a daily moisturizer, and the Good, which is a go-to multifunctional serum, and I love their products. And I suggest you check out considering this one-minute morning and night routine that can reduce your wrinkles, face lines, and signs of aging. And for just our audience, we have an exclusive deal. You're not going to beat this offer. It's use one, the code one, O-N-E at calderalab.com to get 20% off right now. Get 20% off with code O-N-E at calderalab.com to make unforgettable first impressions with the best gift this holiday season. That's 20% off at calderalab.com with code one. 
I would encourage everyone to do it. Very informative. And we'll drop the link in, in our show notes for those who are interested as well. And I want to go back to something, Kirsten, you just said about feedback, because I think you you do talk about this in the book and I, and I want to expand on it because I think it's so important because I've come to understand being, you know, uh, both a leader and a follower in organizations that this is just such an art and it's really not something you're taught in in the world of business. And, you know, I always say feedback, uh, criticism can sometimes be disguised as feedback. And, and so often we aren't taught how to give feedback. We also really aren't taught how to receive it. So can you yes. talk more about feedback and, and how, and, and on both sides of the coin, how important it is and also how to do it? Like, how do we do this feedback yeah. thing? <laughs> It's, it is a tricky thing. I mean, no one, you're right, no one teaches you how to give it or receive it. I began my career in the military and so I don't remember ever being taught about feedback. But over my career, I went into law. I then led a group of psychologists. I was the CEO of a global group of psychologists. Now, psychologists love feedback. <laughs> they love giving it uh, and giving it over and over. And, and the organisation I ran had a true feedback culture where any I was the CEO Anyone could give me feedback. It didn't matter what your role was. And so multiple times a day I would have people saying, oh, can I come and give you some feedback? And, look, I have to admit there were times when you're thinking, oh, my goodness, not again. I don't know that I can handle any more feedback. (laughs) But what it taught me was, A, the real value of having a true feedback culture where people feel able to express how they feel and what's going on for them, and, B, how to stay present in those really challenging conversations where you know you might be triggered and thinking what are you talking about I don't agree yet you need to stay and and really hear people out because it's their perception and that's valuable and you want to hear feedback again in the future so I think the the lesson with any feedback conversation particularly if you're a leader that needs to give feedback and I think I spend a couple of pages in the book with an actual plan for how to have this kind of conversation. And it begins with really thinking about, well, where and when are we going to do this and how are we going to do it? And in a hybrid working environment, it's a completely different situation now. It's not impossible, but you really need to think about how to have this conversation and what's going to be going on for that person. But I also encourage leaders to think about what is it about the other person that might trigger you? Because often if there's a performance issue, there's something that's irritating you or bothering, you know, you really need to look in the mirror and think, you know, what is it that this person could say that's really going to set me off and think about that well before having the meeting. And if you're feeling frustrated or stressed or your boss is putting you under pressure, try and do the meeting at a different time. Because the most important quality you can go into a feedback session with is curiosity. Because obviously you're there to give feedback, receive feedback, but be curious about what's driving it. Be genuinely curious. So if someone wants to give you feedback and it hurts because we've all got three triggers when we hear it, I don't know how much these will resonate with you, but you might think, A, you're wrong, you know, you just don't agree with the feedback and so then you're clouded by whatever they're saying because you don't agree. The second trigger we have is you're an idiot, so you're then clouded by the relationship that you've got with the person. It doesn't even matter how good the feedback is. You're already thinking, you know, how dare you? But the third trigger we have is shame or embarrassment. It's all about us. You know, something in us is triggered. You need to recognise what those triggers are and learn to 
stay curious about the conversation. And, you know, my husband laughs at me when he gives me feedback on how to load the dishwasher and I'm thinking, A, you're wrong, B, you're an idiot. (laughs) And he's trying to tell me, I must admit, I'm not very good with my curiosity about why he thinks I should be loading the dishwasher in a different way in that stage. But in a work situation, I can stay curious. And then it's all about questions, you know, okay, can you tell me more about that? Can you help me understand you know, can you give me an example of um, when that's happened? I'd love to know more because, you know, it's obviously something that's bothering you. How can I work on that? So it's a very long answer, but I think if you go into it with an open mind and curiosity, it's likely to go well. That's that's so true. It's like a balancing act and creating a culture of feedback. And I, I can relate to the example that you gave of, of working with the psychologists and where it was very feedback rich and, and some of the challenges that come with that. Do you, do you see an opportunity, even if you are the the person who's aiming to provide feedback, to also take some ownership on like actionable walkaways or like things to take away? So it's cause I've I've found that in really strong feedback cultures, you'd rather default that way than the alternative, but you can end up with a lack of ownership sometimes in the providing feedback versus you know thinking, hey, how can I also influence change? Um, do you see that too? A hundred percent. So the, you know, if you're the leader and we're talking about formal leaders now and you're talking to someone in your team who you would like to give some feedback to, you absolutely need to leave that meeting with a clear plan for success if that's your goal. If your goal is to move them out of the organisation and this is the first of many performance meetings and you're giving feedback, then you're probably going to have a bit of a different strategy. But I would hope that you're giving feedback because you want them to succeed. If that's the case, then absolutely. And it would be saying to them at the end, okay, here's some ideas, get their buy-in. You know, how does this sound for you? Does this seem doable? What? When can we meet and talk about this again? You know, when can you give me some feedback on how you feel it's going? Lots of questions and lots of agreement on a, a plan of action. But I wouldn't, you know, I'm I'm an Australian. We're pretty blunt. We don't go anywhere unless we've got a plan. <laughs> and I that's been my experience. <laughs> yeah, I I wouldn't want that person leaving in any uncertainty at all because you know they're going to go home and and freak out. Basically, they're going to be thinking, "Oh my god, am I about to get sacked? Um, I don't know what that mm. meeting was for. Now I don't know what I'm supposed to do. All she told me was that I'm not doing this well." But now what? How do, I don't know how to do it well. Like you never, ever as a leader want that situation. So I would allow plenty of time in the meeting for, okay, what mm. are the next steps? How we? What does success look like? Make it clear. So if you're not happy with what's happening now, what do you actually want it to look like? And then how are we going to get there together? And, again, you've got a yeah. really different frame if you're giving the feedback to help them succeed you genuinely want it. This is a partnership. Like, how are we both going to make this better? Even even if you're, say, like managing up, right? If you're coming to, mm. a, you know, a, a leader of yours with some feedback, like you can you can think of it this way too, right? Yeah. Now that's always tricky. It's always tricky <laughs> to go feedback up, and it'll depend on how 
psychologically safe your leader has made the situation. I have had plenty of mixed experiences, including a boss that just sat there silently and was really not (laughs) interested in the feedback. And you soon realize I'm never giving you feedback again. Like I'm never even going to try. And that is (laughs) the kind of culture where, you know, it's not one I want to work in because you soon realize this isn't a place where I can speak up. Or you might have um, some leaders who just genuinely, the best ones, just want to hear more and they may not agree like I've had leaders push back and say you know I understand where you're coming from I'm really keen to I'm so grateful you've come and given this to me but I just want to give you a piece of information you didn't have you know and then you go oh okay I didn't realize that now they a good leader will then say actually I probably could have given the team a bit more context because I can see why you've come and then everyone leaves feeling safe and heard and there's no um, destruction in that relationship that's the perfect kind of outcome where a boss has heard your feedback perhaps not agreed with it told you that but given you the reasons um, that's another powerful way to have these conversations and Kristen Mm. how do you advise leaders especially who are receiving feedback to weed through what's valuable and worth changing and what just might be a perspective to your point just now that they don't agree with. Because I, I when you're in yeah. a high feedback environment, you can end up being a ping pong ball. Well, every, every <laughs> single day you're changing based off everyone's feedback, which isn't a, a smart path forward either. So how are you weeding through what's valuable and should affect change and what is just a perspective that can just be a perspective? Great question. I think that's where you need to test the feedback with some trusted voices, not the people that are just going to say you're wonderful and how terrible, like not your girlfriend, (laughs) not someone who, or your mother, who's like, no, you're perfect. That can't be correct. You're the best there ever was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no way there could be anything wrong with you. You need to find those people and we all have them that, you know, aren't going to bullshit you, excuse the language, that are actually going to say you know, you do do that a little. Um, I noticed when blah, blah, blah. That's when you go, okay, I didn't realise that's what I was doing. Can you tell me more about it? And they're going to be someone who's obviously just wants you to succeed. And so I think when you get that insight, that's then gold as a leader because it's a blind spot you didn't even know you had. And I think it's important to go back to that person in your team that's given it to you and thank them. Like it's important to round out these conversations to show that you've heard them, that you're acting on it, that you, you know, are really grateful because you'll never get the feedback again if they think that you're someone who's angry at them or, you know, going to hold it against them. So I think if that happened to me and I and my friend or trusted person colleague said, actually, yeah, that's spot on, we just didn't know how to tell you, um, I'd be really grateful to the, to, the coll- to the worker or whoever's in your team that has told you that. Well, I think it's such a gift because I always say, I, I, I for one, would want to know if I had spinach in my teeth. Like, I would want someone to tell me <laughs> if I was doing something that wasn't maybe putting people at ease or, or was being received in a way that, that was counter to what I, what I wanted to have happen. So I think it's such a gift. And as a leader, how it do you is. create, you, there's this sort of theme in, in a lot of leadership right now and in, uh, and in cultural ecosystems around psychological safety. But I always say it's one of those esoteric things that not a lot of people talk, teach you how to actually create. So what's your recommendation for leaders and how to create enough psych- psychological safety in their relationships and in their culture for people to come and provide this type of feedback? 
Yeah, I think if you've got a high trust, no blame culture where you genuinely um, believe that. So, again, there's cultures we all know where the words are on the wall that say uh, we're mutually respectful and it's safe to speak up and, you know, all our values. But then when someone does, it might not be you, but you just hear of someone down the corridor spoke up and, oh, my God, you know, this happened. Off with their head. Yeah, exactly. It, it might not even be true, but that's the the, the vibe. Um, then people aren't going to speak up. So I think as leaders, it's totally on us to create those safe cultures. And if you're not receiving feedback, I'd be asking yourself why. So people in your team have views. <laughs> they definitely would have a view about your leadership. It could be good. It might be terrible, but you need to be hearing it one way or the other. And so I work with leaders and I know there was one, um, in fact, I use it as a case study in the book where they worked for one of the big four consulting firms and very confident partner, knew in the industry incredibly well. But whenever they were with their team, you know, no one ever said anything. And they assumed it was because they were so smart and wonderful and, you know, knew everything and so they just led the way. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> this is not good. Obviously your team has views. They're sitting there. They're not feeling able to speak up because you do all the talking and you're not making it safe for them to do so. And so they ended up experimenting. We sort of coached through how they'd get through that by going into meetings without the answer, which was totally new for them, totally uh, I had to undo sort of 30 years of how they'd always worked, which was to go into a meeting with exactly what they wanted the team to do, not seek feedback about how they would together come up with a solution. But, of course, it completely changed the dynamic of that group. I should mention, if I, if I can, about the word to wisdom ratio you might have met, read about in the book. And this is a concept um, that I've found people really resonate with and it's just perfect for this sort of topic because when I first started sitting on company boards about um, a decade or more ago, I was really young. So I was 38 on my first publicly listed company board and I'm now 50. And when I was then, uh, you know, a young green director, I felt I needed to speak sort of at every single conversation, every topic. I was just, you know, speaking for the sake of speaking and not really adding particularly much value at all. But I was noticing my really experienced colleagues around the boardroom table barely said anything at all. And, in fact, the most experienced directors would only maybe say one sentence or ask one question, but that one question would completely influence, you know, the course of direction of a conversation. So I coined then, and I still use it now, this word-to-wisdom ratio. And basically my number of words it was taking me to add wisdom was pretty poor. It was taking me a hell of a lot of words and I wasn't adding much wisdom at all, whereas theirs was obviously very healthy. And I think I use it still now as the more senior you become, making sure you're not that leader dominating the space Because if you're in the room with your team and you're doing all the words and all the speaking and and taking up all of that room, you're not leaving the space for anyone else to, to find a solution or to come up with a better solution or to coach them. You know, this is our opportunity to be asking questions, even if you know the answer. Ask the question just to see. So I think the word to wisdom ratio, depending on wherever you sit in your career, can be valuable. 
Could be a, a KPI for the quality of curiosity you bring to a meeting as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe AI in the future will be able to measure, you know, what our word to wisdom <laughs> ratio was. Well, I think it's so important because of what you said earlier, where where this idea that when we're in that leadership position, we have to know everything and have all of the answers. And really, if you're coming into every single one of these meetings with a directive and a clear path forward, it's just your perspective, which candidly, as a leader, is a lot of weight, too. Like You get to distribute the weight of this decision making if you can open yourself up to ask questions and get other people's perspectives. And you also might find something out that you didn't know before. Shock horror, Nikki. Shock horror that, you know, you might actually (laughs) learn something. I I couldn't agree more. It's stressful being a leader. It's lonely enough at the top as it is. Why not share the load and bring people along with you who are going to have a different perspective and who will most likely have a better answer than you can have? So I think there's nothing to lose. The, The exception is situations where there's a crisis where, you know, really you need to be making quick, fast decisions and worry about everyone's feelings afterwards. They are rare though, few and far between. And I think I interviewed the pol- one of the police commissioners um, in the in my book and she ended up being in the chapter on empathy and I sort of flippantly said, oh, you know, there's not much room for empathy when you're chasing someone down the street, you know, trying to arrest them. And she made the valid point. That's like 1% of what policing is about. The rest of it is all about relationships and building trust with the community and things like that. So it's very, very rare as a leader that you should be acting in that unilateral way. 99% of the time we need teams around us. So in the book, Mm. you talk about this art of modern leadership is sort of marrying both the head and the heart. And you took us through the perspectives, but I want to hear from you. How, how, how can you, especially in this world where so much of our interactions with people is remote, which I think adds a whole nother layer of challenge that you don't sort of get the time at the water cooler. Everyone says that it's not good for productivity, but in a sense, it's actually great for community building, which I think can be really hard that you don't have that now. How do you marry both of these together? As a leader, how are you choosing when to bring which and how to interact with both in these situations? That is the million-dollar question. <laughs> so while I can easily say, look, the art of modern leadership is knowing what's needed and when that's critical, that's the one thing. It is a one thing. Knowing how to do that is really hard, and a lot of it is trial and error. So the way I led, you know, as a younger junior leader in the military, junior officer, is very different to how I lead now, and that's because I've made zillions of mistakes and I've got all the scar tissue from having made those mistakes and being able to sort of understand through feedback and and just how you feel about yourself in certain moments to know what's going to work and we still get it wrong but I think this art is being open to learning and so for new leaders who might be listening you know don't be afraid to go and ask for advice from someone that you work with it doesn't have to be your boss it might be just another senior colleague and say here's how I'm thinking of tackling it what would you advise and you know see how that fits with you but if it doesn't feel right you know go and speak to someone else there's no um no issue with seeking advice as much as you can because this is just a process of learning and we're forever learning sadly (laughs) you'll never be perfect at this and that's fairly depressing I wrote the book and I'm definitely not perfect so (laughs) there you go 
depressing, but comes with a bit of freedom too, that if you're never going to be perfect, it's a you, lot of freedom. Yeah, you might, yeah. you might as well not hold yourself to that impossible standard anyway. Exactly. It's a moving target too. Yeah, exactly. And what, and that's about reading the room too, Chris. So what might've worked yesterday um, in your leadership and what you thought was needed and when uh, won't be the right thing tomorrow. And even in one conversation, you think about conversations, you think of going to go one way and then within 10 minutes, the kind of the wheels have fallen off and you need some different skills and maybe a whole heap of humility to get through that. That is reading a room as well. So it is a moving target for sure. I also think it gives freedom to the people that we lead, right? Like as a leader, if you're always perfect and always know the answers, then then or or project that because we know it's not real, yeah. then then you impose that impossible standard onto everyone around you too, uh, which I think lessens everyone's productivity. Ah, oh, it's and it's tiring. Yeah, like, it's exhausting. I don't want to have to work like that with. But I remember earlier in my career, you know, I'd put on a suit. I was working in a corporate law firm, and that was like your armor that you wore to sort of give this impression that you knew everything. And like I was thirty, I knew nothing. But I, I tried to give that impression because my bosses were leading that way, and it was like you can't afford. And I was female in a male-dominated. Lots of different reasons that minorities and women. We just need to drop it all. <laughs> just be ourselves and be able to say, I don't know. I don't know how to do this, but I am confident I'm capable of learning. Yeah. So tell me what I need to know so I can learn and we're gonna we're gonna do this really well. Yeah, I'm confident I can figure it out. Yeah. I was just gonna say at the end of every one of these podcasts, we we always ask, what is the one thing if our listeners want were to take one thing from this conversation from you, what's the one thing that you would want them to take away from this conversation? I want them to remember they are a leader. I don't care what it says that they do or what they've been told their entire life or whether you've been told you're not the right kind of leader. None of that matters. You are a leader already. So make your legacy a good one. Oh, I love that. Make your legacy a good one. I feel like that needs to be on a shirt. (laughs) Uh, If anyone wants to know where to find you, where should they go? Well, if they go to headheartleader.com, they can do the scale or they can find me, kirstenferguson.com, and you'll get lots of information. But go and buy the book. It's on Amazon. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>